0: Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigalov, where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigalov was either off duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigalov was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigalov. Alright, well thank you for joining me again. I want to first give a shout out to my Patreon supporters. We've got Shell at the $50 level. We've got Sam and Angela Shelkey. Thank you so much for your support. And we've got the the Tier 3 which is the Pandemic Reprimando at $17.76 a month with Perry and Ty helping there. We've got a self-made level at $10 with Kevin and Katie. The $5, the refined but not burned tier. Joe, PJ, Rebecca, Emmy. We've got the Courage is courageous, Contagious level at $1 a month. Amanda, Spets, Nasty, and Jay. I want to thank you all so much for, for for supporting me, for helping me with these various lawsuits that I'm engaged in. I was just speaking with our guest about how I've already spent 60000 of my own and 10000 of Truth for Health grant. And so what we're, we're going to talk about a little bit is the NDAA and how that doesn't seem to have any recourse for me, but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more and find out. I have the pleasure of introducing Davis Yunts, lawyer. We've spoken to him a few times before, but he's been influential in this fight. He's been here since the beginning. He, anything that he says is solely his opinion, is not that of the Department of the Air Force, the DOD, nor the U.S. government. Great to have you back. Hey, thanks, brother. It's great to be back. So where do you want to start? Well, let's talk about the NDAA. Love it. Let's dive so, in.
1: Yeah, listen. As you know, it's a it's a step, right? It's a step in the right direction when we look at the language that's in the current NDAA. But it's important to talk about the idea that ending the mandate, ending the mandate through the NDAA, does very little for anyone like us, like you and I, who has already been subjected to adverse career consequences because of the vaccine mandate. So there's there's a couple of different ways to frame it, but I think we can, we can start by talking about kind of the history of the, this NDAA, how we got here and what's actually in it. Do we have to go back to last year? What's in the current NDAA would have been great if it had been in last year's NDAA, the 2022 NDAA. So many of us were pushing for that. I was on phone calls with congressional staffers. There were a few congressmen that were willing to push for it, but it never got any traction. Didn't happen last year the only change that happened in the NDAA last year was a slight downgrade in the level of punishment that they could give individuals who refused the vaccine. So the only thing that happened for the 2022 NDAA was the worst case scenario for discharge characterization for someone who refused the vaccine was a general discharge. So while that was a small change, it did help because the military was contemplating court-martialing all of us. And that's not an exaggeration. That's what we were all being threatened with. And and we expected it. That change in the NDAA made it less attractive for the military to court-martial people because they couldn't get a punitive discharge. So somebody couldn't get a, a bad conduct or a dishonorable discharge from a court-martial because of that tweak to the NDAA. So that's kind of where it starts. And then we move forward to this year. And what happened is Congress has passed, House and the Senate have passed. We're waiting for Biden's signature on an NDAA that will end the mandate. The only language in the NDAA, NDAA is, hey, from the date it's signed, the Department of Defense has 30 days to end the mandate. That's it. So we don't know what that's going to do moving forward. We don't know what that means as far as policy, or what policy is going to look like, and it does nothing retrospective. So whichever one you want to talk about first, doc, as far as the past stuff, the retrospective, or what it looks like in the future, let me know.
0: Yeah, I mean we've got we've, I'd like to cover all those if we have time. Like, so things that are already in in incoming right now, I guess. So I guess the retrospective. So like me in particular, and there's many many service members. I'm only using me as an example, and this is not a poor me. I knew exactly what I was stepping into when I walked into this this ring. But like. I've allegedly disobeyed direct orders because they were an order. And so I've disobeyed them. Well, this doesn't remedy that at all, does it?
1: It doesn't. And that's the issue. So the issue that we have is from a, from the military's perspective, from a DOD policy perspective, they look at any one of us who was given an order to receive the vaccine and refused that order, which includes you and I. Right? Anyone that did that, they're looking at us at us as if we have dis, disobeyed an order. According to them, it's a lawful order, and therefore, the whether it's a, a gomar on the army side, a letter of reprimand, whatever it is, whatever punishment occurred, they see that as done and fixed, and and we could still face separation, face the loss of our career because of that, you know, that punishment that we received. So this NDAA just ending the mandate does nothing to address any of those orders, it does nothing, nothing to address the illegality of those orders, and it does nothing to restore anyone who's already been punished. So for example, I mean, we have this crazy, crazy situation, you and I have talked about it, where we have an army captain who's meeting an administrative separation board the very week that Congress passes this into the mandate, the only misconduct in over 17 years is an allegation of not following this order, and that's it. And that individual is now still being processed for separation because that occurred prior to this new NDAA. And regardless, regardless, because the disobeying the lawful order occurred before the end of the mandate, the DOD could take the policy position that they're still going to punish and administratively separate all of us. And I think that's critical because this... The issue for many of us, what saved many of us, is the injunctions in federal court, the federal judges that have said, hey, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, it's apparent on its face that you violated federal law, you violated the Constitution and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as it pertains to religious accommodation review process. And for all of those people, and I'm one of them, that injunction's protected us. But if that injunction goes away, if there's some change in the federal litigation, then guess what? We're not protected anymore, right? We fall, back, we fall back into the process. We fall back into that because, again, that all happened before this change in the NDAA. So that's a huge problem. And, and there's nothing about this change that does
0: anything to, to restore that. And so I, that kind of brings me to my next. How do we, how do we flip it on its head? Right, because right now it's, they said it's no longer a mandate, but in, in reality, when you look at the facts and you look at the law, there is many people, there are many people that have broken the law, 10 U.S.C. 1107 Alpha. And the only reason we have that law is because it went so long that they said, okay, all right, you need to stop pushing this anthrax thing. And so now we actually have code that that has been codified, and that's redundant, but we have law that says, no, you can't force service members to... to ha- to take eway products well they've already done that so they already broke the law And, and for for guys like you and me like we were in when that law was written like there's some some younger young bucks in who who weren't in when that but but they're actually violating the law that was written for us and so how do we how do we flip that on its head and start the offense because making it stop is not good enough if if it's removed because then we will have The only reason we can say it's illegal now is because it went far enough in the past that we have this law now. And I've been using this example and tell me if this is inappropriate, but it seems like it's appropriate. If I go to the judge and say, your honor, the defendant burned my house down and the judge says, oh, well, you don't have a house, so your case is moot. But your honor, I don't have a house because he burnt it down. But your case is moot because you don't have a house. It seems like that's where we are.
1: No, that's absolutely right. And and. People might think that's far-fetched, but but listen, Sam. That's exactly what the DOD and the DOD and the DOJ did as it pertains to the Marine Corps case in Florida that's going to trial in January. That case on the violations of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and and the constitutional rights of Marines is scheduled to go to trial in January. As soon as as soon as it became clear that the NDAA was going to pass. The the DoD and the DOJ filed a motion, and they said to the judge in Florida, "Hey, the mandate's going to end anyway, so we don't need. We can delay depositions of our senior leaders, and we can delay trial because it doesn't matter." Like we think that sounds absurd. We think your example sounds absurd, but but it's not because that's precisely what they did. You know, they're they're trying to create this appearance, this impression, potentially that hey, we ended the mandate. What do you want? What else do you want? And just ignore. The, just the, the consequences, the devastation that an illegal policy, a poorly executed policy, poorly thought out policy has had on the military, military readiness, 10,000 plus people that have already been discharged, thousands and thousands that we can't even track that have retired or left early or left at the end of their contract who were planning to stay because of this policy. So all of that, all of that is already, already at issue. So you talk about how we go on the offense, I mean, Part of it is what, what we're doing right now, this conversation that we're having right now and saying, hey, and we've I've talked about this before, I've talked about this with you, you know, the rest of the, the world, it seems, the American public has sort of moved on from the pandemic, right? COVID seems like a bad joke, something everybody wants to forget, and yet we're still dealing with it. We've been dealing with it the whole time in the military. And so now we're on that same path because now we're going to see a situation where there's this tremendous inequity. And I think that's how we have to talk about it. It's a question of timing now, right? It's a question of timing between those who quote unquote violated an order and those who didn't. And it could be a matter of 24 hours depending on when an injunction came down or when this mandate comes down. So you're going to see just unequal treatment. So I think that's a big part of this. I think making the military understand and see, I think making judges understand and see that inequity. And I do think when we go to administrative separation boards, if If we reach a point where we're in a board and we have an officer with a stellar record, all they want to do is serve, this is the only blemish on their career, and there is no mandate anymore. I think it's going to be harder and harder for military officers to look those individuals in the eye and say, "Yeah, you know what, we're going to kick you out." Some will, some will, but I think many are going to have a hard time with that because there still are people, you know, good people in the military serving, despite all of this. We wish more of them had taken a stand, but they're still out there, and at some point. You know, in this whole process, they've they've understood. They they've seen now. Hey, this is illegal. Now I see it. Now I understand why you're taking this stand. And we have had people convert it, if you will, once they actually look at the law. Because, as you said, 10 USC, Title 21 of the U.S. Code. It's simple. It's very very simple. It's not hard to read. It's very very clear what it means. And it was passed to prevent things exactly like what we're doing dealing with here.
0: And. I, I like the way you stated this, you, and I may be misquoting you exactly what the idea is. It was a poorly rolled out policy, and I think what you're getting at is it was written correctly. The words on the paper were correct, so in a court of law, it will look like everything was done properly, but the way it's actually been pushed out, there is no FDA-approved product that's available, even to this day, and they've they've pushed a mislabeled product and that has the word comernity on it, which is fraud. And so there's people that have actually committed fraud.
1: Right. And that's what I mean by, by poorly executed, right? And, and one of the things that you have to do, and it does open people's eyes, I think, is when you say, look, the, the DOD policy that was put out and then the orders, you know, in the army, FRAGO 5, that was put out, make it clear, hey, you cannot force someone to take the EUA. It has to be the FDA approved product, but there was no recognition of the reality that as of the 24th of August, when this was rolled out and mandated, that there would not be an FDA approved product available. And as far as you and I know, as far as any experts I've talked to know, know, there still is no FDA approved product, right? So whatever the cause for that is, right? Whatever whatever happened to, to cause that, and we could speculate on that, but the reality is there was no FDA approved product available. Was it as simple as the Pfizer and Moderna didn't want to produce it because it wasn't financially lucrative because they have all of this stockpile of EUA products? I don't know the answers to those things. I don't speculate on those things. Was the DOD just caught off guard by the fact that there was no FDA product? I don't know that those explanations are there. But the reality is, hey, the orders, the policy was written correctly, but it couldn't be executed, right? It couldn't be carried out. And that's been the impossibility issue has been an issue that remains.
0: And what blows my mind is like exactly what you said, the policy was written correctly. And if you read through the policy and you read it carefully, and you understand what words mean and that words have meaning. And you see that you can take the FDA approved or, which means new, new statement, or you can take the authorized for use. And then you walk over like I did. I walked over to where they had the vial sitting there. I asked if I could take a picture. I took a picture. And they all say EUA for emergency use only. Boom, right there. But yet all of this happened. I have those pictures. I have them time-stamped. everything. So, and, and then what's even more striking is a year later, almost to the day, they gave me another order to take this comarity-labeled product, which I claim is fraud. And I claim that because of the phone call that happened with a, a Pfizer representative who said it was made in France. And there is no FDA-approved manufacturing site in France at that time. And... And yet, even if we took it on face value and thought that that really was co and not co labeled, that would be proof or should be proof that my previous order was an unlawful and illegal order. But yet nobody cares.
1: Well, th- that's right. And I've seen that same issue because you don't, e- you don't see in any, any documentation filed anywhere, you don't see the DOD even claiming that they have access to a co labeled product until May of 2022. You don't even see them even claim that until May of 2022. The other thing that's interesting, and this is kind of inside baseball for everybody, but there was one point where the DOD thought about taking the official position that the EUA and FDA approved products were interchangeable, and therefore they could just force people to take the EUA product, right? Remember this? There's a memo. It still exists. That memo existed in time. And and the challenge with that memo is, you know, it was written by an acting deputy undersecretary, number one. Number two is a PhD, not an attorney. And if anything, what she was talking about, what Dr. Adarim was talking about was medically interchangeable versus legally interchangeable. Because at the same time, the FDA was saying these products are legally distinct. So the analogy I use for that. It's like the difference between a wooden baseball bat and an aluminum baseball bat in Major League Baseball, right? You can try and hit a baseball with an aluminum bat or a wooden bat, but you're not, not allowed to use an aluminum bat in a Major League Baseball game. And you can't have, you know, some deputy manager for the Yankees or the American League say, well, we think that they're interchangeable because we use them for the same purpose, to hit a baseball. So that, that counts. We can get around your rules. So again, I just, I think it's, it's, it's important to note those two things. Like you said, they're not going back and saying to the people that they ordered to take this in, in November of 2021 and say, saying, hey, sorry about that. That order we gave you was an unlawful order because we didn't have the FDA approved product until May, right? Now, again, we think it's a bait and switch, but all the evidence shows it's a bait and switch, but, but at best, they would have to go back and reissue all of those orders and recognize that the initial orders that were given were not lawful orders or impossible to carry out. There's, there's been none of that. There's been none of that. Um, and so, you know, again, I think the other piece that we have to look, we can learn from history and we can look forward. And I think the impact that has me very, very concerned for a lot of my clients is in this interim time where we've been waiting, particularly those clients that filed a religious accommodation and they're waiting for the case To go to trial air force navy marine corps right all of those folks they've been waiting they have been subjected to in large part some pretty heinous things and it goes back to the kind of treatment and coercion they received before there was even a mandate people forget this we have a short memory but i pray they don't my experience based on my clients the navy was the absolute worst the marines did some crazy things to try to force this vaccine but the navy was the worst And I say the Navy was worse because if you didn't get before the mandate even came out, if you didn't get the vaccine, you were prohibited from going to church in many commands for a long period of time. You were you were prohibited from going on leave, you were permitted from going on TDY, you were permitted from doing training, you couldn't spend the holiday with your with your family. And and we had situations where if you were assigned to a ship and your ship was deploying, if you were unvaccinated, you had to go report. 14 days early, quarantine 14 days early before anybody else on the ship. And when you got back from that six, seven, eight, nine month deployment, that cruise, you had to quarantine again for 14 days. So all of that coercion was going on. All of that treatment was going on. That's before we had a mandate. And the problem is that hasn't ended even with this this injunction in place for the religious accommodation. So some people have deployed. I know of a sailor that spent Eight months confined to a ship on a deployment, couldn't do a single port call because he wouldn't get a booster. Right? He wouldn't get a booster. He got the original sh- original shots. He 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 realized, hey, I have a religious objection to this. He filed a religious accommodation. He was objecting to getting the booster. The booster is not mandatory, so they say. But he couldn't couldn't do anything. Couldn't leave the ship. Couldn't do a single port call, and he had to quarantine. So the problem I have, the big fear I have is the ndaa ends the mandate but what kind of coercion are are all are you going to face are are my clients going to face moving forward on all of this what kind of coercion are they going to continue to get over the boosters and how's that going to end and are you going to end up with you know sort of two classes of people in the military those that are that are refusing this, this product under the law, those that have filed a religious accommodation or are waiting for that litigation to go through, and those that aren't. And you're going to have those, those objectors, if you will, not promoted, not going TDY, not going to training, not being able to deploy, and, and the rest of the military moving on. So we're still going to see a tremendous impact on these individuals. And it's going to be a, a huge problem. And I think it is going to create some rifts if we're not careful.
0: The next thing that I wanted to to ask you about, because I've heard this too as part of the restoration, is we'll we'll give them their back pay, we'll put them back where they were, we'll promote them if they are supposed to be promoted, and they can go back to service. Well, people like me, and most people that I've talked to, want to take the uniform off and never put it on again. I never want to put myself in a position where someone can have this much power over my life to destroy my good name, to remove my medical license for doing everything appropriately. What recourse do we have? In a general sense, not specifically, well- obviously.
1: Right. In, in, a, in a general sense, I think that's going to be really, really important. And there's a couple of big picture things I want to say about that. Some of this goes back to how this was handled in the first place and then what to look forward to, because I think there's some general guidance to put out to people. But I, I just want to say this. I mean, your frustration... My frustration with all of this really is because of our oath to the Constitution. And people think, hey, I'm exaggerating, I'm sensationalizing this. No, l- let me lay it out. Let me lay it out for you. No, you're absolutely right. But, but here's the thing. He- here's why I say that. that. That oath to the Constitution, right, it's about understanding the function and design of our government. And it's not that we worship the Constitution. It's the principles that it's founded upon. But under that document, it says we have three branches of government. We have legislative, executive, and judicial. And here's the issue. The fear that the founders have, the reason we have Article Three, the reason the Constitution is written the way it's written is there's always a fear that the executive branch, as well as because in part because the military falls under the executive branch, right? the fear is that's gonna become powerful. You're gonna have this all-powerful object, executive that uses the military to take over and, and, and put us in a tyrannical position as a nation. So one of the things that makes is clear in our constitution is hey Congress makes the law. Congress passes the law, the executive branch simply carries out the law. And that's it. That's their responsibility. So what we see in this situation is you have two laws in particular, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and then we have Title 10 and t- Title 21 of the United States Code that that the executive has chosen not to follow right? The executive is saying, hey, that's the law. The law is clear, but we're not going to follow it. And the DOJ even said at the circuit court oral argument in the Doster case, the Ohio case affecting the Air Force, the DOJ attorney argued, hey, we don't have to follow the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It only matters if we're sued in court and, and forced to follow it. Otherwise, we don't have to. We don't have to. It just provides a remedy if we violate the law rather than than something we have to follow. So, so we see this potential for a constitutional crisis when the executive's saying, yeah, the law is clear, but we're not going to follow it because of an emergency or because we don't want to or because it's not convenient or for political reasons. Whatever it is, when the executive says we're not going to follow the law, that's, that's when our oath begins to matter. That's when our oath begins to matter so much because it says, hey, executive, follow the Constitution, follow the law as it's written. So what you see now and and again most people don't see it this way but this NDAA and ending the mandate is actually the constitution working as it should right because congress is saying to the executive hey we're not going to fund you you're not going to have money to execute your duties as far as the military goes unless you end the mandate right so that's stepping them that's them stepping in to say it now we know, and and many leaders in Congress understand why this is an unlawful mandate, why the enforcement of it's been wrong, why it's been a violation of religious freedom. They're not getting that language into the NDAA yet. Maybe they'll be following legislation, but this is a strong signal. It's a pretty extraordinary signal for Congress to do that, to limit the executive and try to get them to follow the law by cutting off the source of funding. So all of that is a background, I think, is kind of, background to the question you were asking. So looking forward, what does that mean? What do we do? what do we do for, for those that, that no longer want to serve? You know, today, for me personally, this is this is my twenty year anniversary. This is I today, took the wow. oath of office twenty years ago today. I did see that today. And I have yeah. an approved retirement date of tomorrow. Right? Congratulations. So I'm supposed to retire effective tomorrow. So, you know, I for me I'm I'm going to get to that point as in in the retired reserves. But there are so many that that feel very strongly that there's no point to continued service under these circumstances, right? And there's many, many people. I talk to people every day. Part of what I'm doing is just counseling and praying with people about that issue. And part of it is this, you know, it really has become a, an ethical, moral, and a religious issue for so many because we're seeing a scenario where we believe our responsibility, our moral, ethical, and religious responsibility is to the oath, is to the Constitution. We're swearing before God to uphold it. But if we're part of an organization that's not doing that anymore, that's a problem. But we see many, many others. This started before the vaccine mandate, and it's continued. We have an organization that is, that is not—if you are a Orthodox conservative Christian— you believe in the Bible, you believe all of Scripture for all of life, it is very, very difficult to serve in the military today. And again, that's not an exaggeration, because that biblical teaching, that foundation, the foundation of our nation, the ideas and precepts of the Constitution itself is based on, are, are not consistent with the policy that's being pushed out consistently. So I think many that are in a situation are going to be in a situation to to leave when their contract is up, to retire as quickly as they possibly can, to request permission to leave early. Because in many respects, what a lot of us are, are conscientious objectors, right? We cannot follow God. We cannot be consistent with our faith and continue to serve in an organization that's asked us to do these things. And so that might not be seen as sort of the traditional conscientious objector viewpoint, but but it really is that. And, and frankly, that's how maybe how some of us should have been treated anyway. If the DoD had the legal authority to do it, they had the product available and they said, "Hey, you're gonna do this regardless of your religious convictions, then they, then they could have said, okay, but we're gonna put you through a conscientious objector process and you're gonna leave, not punishment, you're gonna leave with an honorable discharge, and we're gonna thank you for your service and say to you, "Hey, you know what? We respect your religious faith, but we think this is mission critical. And because we think it's mission critical, there, there's no place for you anymore. But that wasn't the priority. The priority was 100 percent of the military' shots and arms. The priority was always shots and arms, not the mission, not readiness, not respecting the law, not respecting the Constitution, not respecting religious faith. So regardless of why, political reasons, other reasons, nefarious reasons, whatever they were, it was always about 100 percent compliance 100% shots and arms you saw that more clearly in your position than i did but it's that's absolutely what the goal was and what the policy was
0: i want to take you back to something you said that you know congress is using its power of the purse which they should and they need to understand how powerful they truly are with that that power right there but we've seen this played out before maybe not you and me but in history we've seen andrew jackson where he was driving the natives off of the reservations, and they, he went to court, and court said, "All right, stop." And then he basically said, "Stop me." How do we get people to follow the law?
1: Well, I, I think that's a huge challenge. But I think that we're going to see we're going to see a determination, and I pray that we see a continued determination of people that that are not going to comply. That they're not going to compromise, and they're going to politely say. This is not This is not how it works. And we've talked about this before, but one of the interesting things about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the Supreme Court verified this in 2020 is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is one of those laws where an individual government actor can be held personally financially liable for violating the law. What does that mean? What does that look like? That means an individual military officer, an individual military commander That is, violating that that law can be held personally, financially liable for the damages they've caused in court, in federal court. The Supreme Court has upheld that under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So there are very few situations where the government gives up sovereign immunity, where the government gives up sovereign immunity as it pertains to the military, right? Very, very rare that a military member can sue the military in any capacity especially to get financial damages. Normally it's just to stop some action against them so they can continue to serve. But it's very, very rare that any individual commander or government agent within the military would be held personally responsible. But the Religious Freedom Restoration Act allows that. And I think that's fascinating because one of the things I'm curious to see is, does that happen here? Is there going to be litigation where someone says, wow, this was a violation. This had a significant negative financial impact on someone. And it's you, Commander, that issued this order. Your name's on the paper ordering this. You did this, and, and the process was broken. You were enforcing a religious freedom, you know, a violation of religious, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Now you're personally liable. Uncle Sam's not coming to back you up anymore. Uncle Sam's going to wash their hands. It's going to be on you because you violated the law. So that kind of personal accountability, I think, is one of the fallouts from this, and that would make a huge difference Because then there would be a resurgence of a need for military commanders to to understand the law and follow their oath.
0: I have a question for you, and this may be, I don't mean to, to put you out there, but have you or any other lawyers come together and worked on drafting something so it can be done? I don't know the proper term, but like I can do it for myself to my own lawyer. Pro se? Is that what it's called?
1: Yes. Yes. There are, there have been some pro se efforts out there for
0: the religious and, accommodation issue.
1: Yeah. On the religious accommodation issue. Some folks have tried that. There's some, there's some other litigation that I'm aware of that's out there that relates to masking and other things. And I think there'll be more, but pro se, I mean, that's just refer. that refers to someone going in without an attorney that's been tried not to a lot of success on this, but I think people will continue to push that envelope because they have no other recourse right if you if you follow the system internal to the military and and many 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 have done that right they you meet with the chaplain you file your religious accommodation it's not properly processed or it's denied then you appeal it it's denied again it's not a proper process people file IG complaints we saw the IG the Department of Defense IG said hey Secretary of Defense, it appears clear based on just a quick statistical analysis and the information we see you're violating the law and that you have been and and DOD does nothing about it. So when you see a situation where the process that's in place isn't being followed by the military, even the watchdog for the military, the DOD IG, warns them, hey, this doesn't look good. This looks like you're violating the law. And there's no reaction. There's no action based on that. There's no change based on that then federal that's when federal courts get very perturbed you know federal courts are hesitant to get involved in internal affairs but if the process chain of command's followed the administrative process is followed IG process is followed and there's there's no intervention there's no stopping it that's when you see congress act that's when you see federal courts get involved
0: cuz i would love to see the system be absolutely flooded with people like those 10,000 that you mentioned each every single one of them, or maybe even, even half of them, overwhelming and flooding the system with these pro se arguments because of the religious accommodation or because their medical accommodation was revoked for non medical reasons, for political reasons rather than medical reasons.
1: And and I think that's, you know, I think that's a that's an interesting part about this because just like with the anthrax cases, it took years to restore so many people and and get get them restored and many, many weren't, we're gonna see the same thing here. We're gonna see, see the same thing here. And I think the other thing we're gonna see moving forward, I mean, imagine a scenario, and this is not far-fetched at all, but imagine a scenario where someone filed a religious accommodation request, it was denied, they appealed it, it was denied as part of the blanket denial of all of this, right? So it's clear, just as it was with everybody else, that it was just a blanket denial, a violation of the law. Then that then that soldier, that airman go, says, okay, I don't want to do this, but I feel like I don't have a choice. I'm going to go get vaccinated. So they're they're being forced to violate their religious conviction, and some did, right? And then they're injured. They're injured as a result of receiving this product. And now you're in a situation where, you know, I think there's going to be potentially years of litigation related to that. And again, that's not far-fetched. If you saw it this week, the FDA the FDA is now recognizing a study that shows a tie to blood clots and this, and this product. The FDA is talking about that now. That there's a correlation there. So, you know, if our fears, some of the fears I have about the safety of this experimental product, because we have no, I don't care who you are, you can't say we have long-term data on the safety of this, because it hasn't existed long-term. So the reality is, if if this is as bad as many believe it is, many of the experts I'm talking to think this product is, you're going to see a situation where someone's religious freedom rights were violated. They were put in an impossible situation. They, they, they took it, even though it, was, it wasn't it was a lawful order. They were told it was, even though it violated their religious freedom, and now they're injured? I mean, from a personal injury standpoint, from a damages standpoint, if those, those people bring cases, I mean, you're absolutely right. 10,000 of those cases, more? What does that look like? That's a, that's a huge effort. And I hope it comes.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, we're just starting to talk about this now, but it's kind of the elephant in the room. You know, I've been talking about all these other people who have been harmed for their career and harmed for this and harm, but the true, the real people that have been harmed are those that have actually been medically harmed. Like I have a 26 year old friend who can't walk across a parking lot without being winded. He was a PT stud before, you know, I, we both have a friend, doctor, he's talked about it many times in public forums, Dr. Chambers, how, you know, he was falling at 10,000 feet and got vertigo. It's like, that's not the time to have vertigo. I mean, just all these health consequences. We, there, You and I both know many people that have been harmed. And I'm sure there's, well, I'm certain there's many that have died from the shot. There will be many who die in the near future who should not die because of the heart failure that they're experiencing from the myocarditis. Typically, heart failure survival rate is like five years. We don't know what it's going to be like for this. Could it be five years? Could it be ten years? Could they have normal survival rates? Could they have one year? We don't know.
1: Yeah that that pending wave, we just we we have no idea what it's going to look like. But that's going to come out into litigation in an environment where the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and clear federal law was violated, and it, and it's not going to look pleasant. And you know, a couple of pieces on that. One, from a medical standpoint. You know, I, I represented an air force officer and, and what I can say is, you know, he'd had an adverse reaction to two different families of antibiotics. Okay. Two different families of antibiotics, adverse reaction almost killed him, right? Father had the same kind of history. One of the things that the CDC and the FDA said in the guidance is, is Hey, if, if you've had a reaction to two different families of antibiotics, it's count, contraindicated that you take this product. That's just, that's just in the paperwork. So we took that, showed it to the, to, to the military and the military said, no, you don't fit into the exemption categories that we're granting. We're, we're not worried about that. You're not going to get an exemption for that. So he said, okay, let me do some more work. In the meantime, his civilian sister and brother both had severe adverse reactions to the product. So two people that are genetically very, very similar to him have severe adverse reactions. One of them had to be hospitalized. She collapsed within 20 minutes of getting the injection. And then he goes to see an allergist, lays everything out to an expert, TRICARE-approved allergist, presents all of that information. The Air Force denies the medical exemption. They deny it. So, so I, you know, I, I bring that up and say that. You know, so many people see that situation, they can see the unfairness of it, but there are many military members in similar situations who then got the vaccination. But I mean, it it really, it's not an exaggeration to say it could have killed him. And, And, you know, you can't speak to it much, but, you know, I know for a fact that he spoke to an Air Force doctor, a uniform wearing Air Force medical provider, who said, if I were you, I would not receive this injection. There is no way I would receive it. There's no way I would let a family member receive it. But you're not going to get a medical exemption because it doesn't fit into the categories that the Air Force has outlined. And those only categories are you're pregnant or you've had an adverse reaction to the first injection. And then it will only be a temporary one.
0: That's so mind blowing. That's so upsetting that someone could see the truth and not do the right thing because if he didn't give him that mantle of protection, he's basically sending this guy to go die.
1: That's right. And and he was told in writing, he was told in writing, this evidence came out of his board, he was told in writing, yeah, by the appeal authority for this medical exemption, a doctor, uniform wearing physician, and 6 yes, it is entirely possible that you'll have an adverse reaction to this. I recommend that you would get admitted to a hospital that has the capability of treating you immediately, particularly for anaphylaxis, before you receive the injection if you're uncomfortable with the risk.
0: Let me pause you there for a second, because that is that is so disgusting, so mind-blowing. Like, medicine has—and this is an 06, so this means he's he's an Air Force colonel, means he's probably been practicing medicine for almost 20 years. And he's saying, well, we have to get this shot so much, go get yourself admitted and get, get it on— on the floor in a hospital bed so that you don't die, why don't you just protect the man and do your job, do your duty and say, No, you should not get this? Oh my goodness. I, I know that me medical so hot.
1: providers Right. But 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 because medical providers' credentials are threatened if they grant exemptions outside of that window or they recommend too many outside of that window. And that's where I go back to the question. Like, why why is it that the policy with with this so-called vaccine with this mandate has been 100% compliance, 100% shots in arms, and that's been the priority, not anything else. And when that's your priority and not anything else from a military perspective, you're going to have negative consequences. And we could go through history and talk about that. We could talk about withdrawals from nations where what we're given is not an objective to, hey, we need to have this accomplished. We need to be able to do A, B, or C safely. We need to have all our equipment out. But rather it's an arbitrary deadline and we're gonna be out by that deadline. Right? I mean we can look at military history, we can see that, and we can see where when it's anything other than military readiness, the mission, following the law, and some other outside, whether it's a political factor, you know, monetary factor, whatever it is, you see disastrous consequences because we're getting away from where we should be, following the law, doing the mission.
0: That's I'm I'm still shocked over here. <laughs> that a doctor would do that i mean that is whoever that guy is i would please have him put in an ethical violation at that doctor's state board because that is completely unacceptable and that is why we have state boards so that we can police ourselves they've been policing me for doing the right thing but this guy needs to be stopped because that is dangerous and who knows how many other people he's recommended that same thing to
1: that's right. And that's just one story. I mean, there, there are multiple stories of, of members of the Air Force who I've spoken to, you know, those that had a significant adverse reaction to the first injection, were given a temporary exemption and then told after a few months, hey, you got to go get the second one. You know, those, it's just, it's, it's been difficult. There are others who are having severe adverse reactions that are now having difficulty getting compensation because they're, they're reservists or in the guard you know they got it in a duty status that happened but but no one wants to recognize that it's a result of of the injection so there's big problems there as well
0: and this this is why we need justice this is why like just getting rid of this mandate is not good enough there needs to be walls that that are immobile that keep this from ever happening again because in 2 years in 6 months we could be in the same position except they'll have the knowledge to know well let's not leave this avenue open for them to defend themselves let's not leave this avenue open for them to defend themselves
1: that's right and you know we need to we need to stay focused on we need to stay focused on learning from history we need to learn the lessons from this we need to learn the examples from this because part of it is when we look at the recruiting crisis we talk about the recruiting crisis you know there are some who think oh well now that the mandate is ended Right now that this mandate has ended, we're not going to have a recruiting problem anymore because all of these people, all of these misled fools that don't want to join the military because they're scared of us, sh- now they'll come and join, right? That's been the mentality. You, you, we've seen that mentality from the beginning. They thought they were going to be able to bully everybody into getting the shot in the first place. That's not going to cure all of the problem because people have watched what's happened throughout this process and they have seen it. And what you've seen is if you look at the surveys, the military has gone from one of the most trusted institutions in our nation, and that, that trust level is dropping off precipitously in public perception. There, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And I think we, we have to be very, very aware of that. You know, so you know, I'm I'm retiring here and, and I'm looking at this and, and I know I'm what I'm gonna be praying for, I know what I'm gonna be working for, which is that we have you know, After this purge of Christians is over, and, and hopefully we can get this turned around, that there will be people that, that come forward, that step up, that have learned for this, will take stands, and we can change military culture. But part of that's going to come from what, what's the moral and ethical standard that we're going to abide by? Is it, is it fear, or, or is, it, is there a shared morality? Is there a shared ethic? That, that we all believe in, we swear an oath under God to the Constitution, let's start with that and and move forward together with that shared ethic because if, if we don't, we're becoming unmoored from anything and we don't have a shared ethic in, in the military anymore and the strangers are those who believe in the Constitution who take that oath seriously, who would die for that oath and and believe that our nation has been blessed tremendously by God and and it's just become very, very difficult to nearly impossible for a strong Christian to continue to serve, and I pray we can change that.
0: I think that's a perfect little segue into the next part that I want to discuss with you. And now, I'm sure there are some atheists on this side, but it seems that most people that I've talked to, an overwhelming majority are Christian and some some Jewish faith. I'm sure there's some other faiths, too, I just haven't had the opportunity to run into them yet. But it, it truly seems that this is a war against a religion, in particular, and some other people seem to fall into that that undesirable categories. Well, just because, you know, they're getting targeted too, but it's all religious people, mostly it seems. And it's hard to make an argument that this is anything other than a war in the unseen realm.
1: I I 100% believe that my my faith informs that and and I think this war has been coming. I think you know, we weren't we weren't ready. (laughs) I think many of us weren't ready. I don't think I was entirely ready. I think many Christians within the military weren't ready. For, for this unseen battle, but, but it's been coming because we've seen, I mean, look, I, I remember sitting at an Air Force base on orders for going through anti-extremism training. And I'll never forget what's there. So everything people see in the media, as far as, oh, religious extremism and other things, it's there, but the most chilling thing is just the statement that if you know anyone who's part of an organization that believes in something so much that they use language like i would be willing to die for this is an extremist and i just stop and i look around the room and i'm like that's supposed to be all of us that's supposed to be every single one of us and so we you know it it's it. moments like that where i say you know wow this is this is an organization that i'm i'm just i, I that's what i say i feel like a stranger in a foreign land right we're we're losing that where, where did that go? What's what's the moral and ethical basis for what we're doing? And it has ramifications. It has ramifications when we see things like the the sexual ethic within the military, the way people are treated within the military. All of that, all of that comes together. And and we have seen, you know, chaplains pushed out of the military because of their stance on same sex marriage. We've seen all of those things. Those things are only going to continue, you know. And and it's going to move from this treatment of those who have a good faith religious (laughs) objection to this experimental treatment to anyone who refuses to put their pronouns in their signature block on their official military email right that's coming all of that's coming if we're not careful and we're not prepared to take a stand on it so you know i pray that god will move i pray for revival because this is a sin issue this is a spiritual battle that we're waging
0: thank you that's perfect. Is there anything else you want to leave us with?
1: No, I I think my biggest thing is I I don't want to be a total downer, especially before before the holiday, we can't miss the fact that this is a significant step. Let's not miss the fact that there was a critical mass of, of senators and congressmen that were not going to move forward on the NDAA, no matter the cost without this provision in it. And I I think that's huge and it did reach a critical mass. It was very close, but in the Senate, that's what it took. It took 12 senators coming together and saying, I will not compromise on this. Absolutely, we wanted them to do more. We know this does very little, but it it is encouraging to, to know that they're listening, that they're hearing, that they're paying attention, more and more seem to be listening and paying attention every day. And and that's where it starts. We need Congress to do their job as the legislative branch, to, to use every tool in their toolbook to rein in an executive when they're going too far. That's what we need to continue to pray for. And we're seeing judges throughout the United States that are willing to take a stand and do the extraordinary thing of stopping the military from violating the law. Again, that's rare in our court system. That's rare in federal courts, but the, they're willing to do it. So there's absolutely hope. God can absolutely move and change. Revival can happen. And, and this change to the NDAA, while it's not, it's not much, it's a positive step in the right direction. And what's encouraging to me about it is those that were willing to take a stand. Those that were willing to take a stand in Congress on this issue and not compromise. And hopefully that gives them courage for, for the rest of the fight that we need.
0: I agree. It's, it's a win. And, you know, celebrate today, but tomorrow I'll get back up and put the, the duty uniform of the full armor of God on and get ready to keep standing. That's right. Thank you, brother. God bless. Thank you. God bless. Just a reminder for everyone out there, duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear.